Hey y'all, welcome to What a Crime to Be Alive. This is Pinky. And I'm Carly. And today we will be discussing the murders of Jacinth Baker and um, Richard Lawler. And you guys might know this as the Ray Lewis murder trial, whatever you want to call, call it. And I'll let Carly take it away now. So this is another case that will be very well known to those who are into football, but especially the NFL. I feel as if we haven't had much backlash on this case, um, like we did the Sandusky case, but our Twitter has been reaching more people than it usually does this week. So just a background to the story, the events that happened took place in the early morning hours just after midnight on January 31st, 2000. However, the night of January 30th, 2000 was the night of Super Bowl 34 at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, Georgia, where the Tennessee Titans and the St. Louis Rams were playing. The Rams ended up winning 23-16. According to a Grantland article written by Patricia Lee around 4 a.m. at the Cobalt Lounge in Atlanta, Georgia, Ray Lewis and several of his friends got into an argument with another group of guys outside of the lounge. The argument escalated, and eventually turned physical when one of the guys with Ray Lewis was hit over the head with a champagne bottle. After the attack with the champagne bottle, the argument turned violent into an actual fight, which took several people to break up, including Kevin Brown, who was a security guard in Decatur, Georgia. I was unsure if Kevin was a security guard at the Cobalt Lounge or somewhere in the vicinity or if he just happened to be in that area at the time of the fight because I know absolutely nothing about Georgia, much less Atlanta. I went to Google Maps and found that the Cobalt Lounge area of Atlanta is around 30 minutes from Decatur. So I have to assume that Kevin Brown was not there doing security guard duties, but my source material doesn't specify one way or the other. Either way, Kevin and a few other people get the, got the fight broken up and cleared people out of the area. At this point, Ray Lewis and 10 other people who were with him at the Cobalt Lounge got into a limousine that Ray Lewis rented. Also, according to the piece by Patricia Lee, after everyone cleared out of the area, Kevin Brown saw a male laying on the ground, bleeding, and another male walking towards him with bloody wounds as well. Kevin heard someone say, quote, I stabbed him, and he called 911. Shots were fired at the limousine as it drove away with Ray Lewis and his group inside. So I want to give a little bit of background on the victims that I found in a U.S. Today article from 2013 written by Brent Schrotenboer. Before that tragic night in 2000, 24-year-old Richard Lawler and 21-year-old Jason Baker had overcome some personal struggles stemming from minor drug-related offenses on their criminal records. Both Lawler and Baker had moved from Akron, Ohio to Atlanta to pursue professions as a barber and as an artist, respectively. At the time of his death, Lawler was engaged to Kelly Smith, his pregnant fiance. According to a 2013 New York Post article, Ken Allen was the lead detective on the scene. Upon his arrival, both victims were dead and had suffered several stab wounds. Richard Lawler was stabbed five times in total, two to the heart, 
two to the stomach region, and one to the chest. It was estimated that Richard Lawler died 45 to 90 seconds after the stab to the chest, which cut into his heart. Jacinth Baker was also stabbed at least once in the liver region and once in the chest region, piercing his heart. An article written by John Morgan in the Baltimore Sun clarifies that Jacinth Baker lived likely a minute or two more than Richard Lawler, but that neither victim made it to the hospital with a pulse. The article I mentioned earlier from Grantland said the crime scene was taped off and witnesses were interviewed. One of the more helpful witnesses was Kevin Brown, the security guard who helped break up the fight. He told police that when Ray Lewis was leaving the Cobalt Lounge, he was very intoxicated. CNN reported that Detective Allen found a small folding knife near the bodies, but the knife had no fingerprints or blood on it. Drops of blood were found around the crime scene, and many samples were contained for testing. Detectives checked local hotels and found that Ray Lewis was staying at the Georgian, but when they arrived, the limousine was nowhere to be found. However, shortly after, police were able to find the limo with bullet holes in it and blood in the interior of it at the Holiday Inn Express where Ray Lewis's friend, Joseph Sweeting, was staying. Sweeting, along with another friend, Reginald Oakley, had been with Ray Lewis that night at the Cobalt Lounge, and they had been observed getting into the limo with Ray Lewis after the fight broke out according to the New York Post. Detectives said that Ray Lewis's limo driver, Dwayne Fassett, drove the limo to the Holiday Inn Express, and from there, Ray Lewis called a taxi to take him to his hotel, the Georgian. Fassett was in the lobby of the Holiday Inn Express when police walked in and was reportedly acting very nervous. He was trembling and chain-smoking. The New York Post article goes on to say that when he was interviewed, Fassett was very cooperative with police and told them everything he knew, which was that he saw Ray Lewis, Sweeting, and Oakley fighting, and when everyone got back into the limo, he heard Oakley say, quote, I stabbed mine, and Sweeting replied, quote, I stabbed mine too. Authorities went to Ray Lewis's hotel room to question him, but they found blood and no Ray Lewis. Instead, they found him at his fiance's family home and questioned him there, but he was no help. In order to give full details about some of the missing evidence, we will have to explore the civil suit first, then we will dive back into the criminal trial. All other passengers of the limo were interviewed and only one person was able to help police, Evelyn Sparks. New York Times reported that Sparks told investigators that she saw another passenger in the limo dump a white hotel laundry bag into a dumpster. But the New York Post reported that the clothes Ray Lewis wore that night, including the mink coat and the infamous bloody white suit, were never found. In 2019, USA Today Sports obtained court records from subsequent civil lawsuits against Lewis and a book by one of his former co-defendants. New details emerged about the suit that prosecutors alleged was stained with blood Two days after the incident, defendant Lewis's mother, Miss Sunseria Keith, met with Miss Robertson and defendant King to, to coordinate and fashion stories that were favorable to defendant Lewis regarding the incident. The Baker family alleged in a court document filed in May 
2003 by their attorney, Richard Middleton of Savannah. Ms. Keith instructed Ms. Robertson, the woman who accompanied Lewis and sat next to him in the limousine, to destroy the suit Defendant Lewis had been wearing at the time of the incident. The suit that Defendant Lewis was wearing during the fight is still missing, and Defendant Lewis has never attempted to locate its whereabouts. Ms. Keith arranged to pay Ms. Robertson for her services and covering up for Defendant Lewis and for Defendant King's legal fees. During the days and weeks following the incident, Ms. Keith, with Ms. Robertson's assistance, acted upon Defendant Lewis's behalf in embarking upon a campaign to contact, counsel, and harass witnesses. Lewis testified in June 2000 he had told Robertson to hold his clothing for him until he returned from Hawaii, where he planned to go to the Pro Bowl. He also testified he left the suit in his hotel room that morning and had no reason to not turn it over. But the suit he was wearing that night was not among the clothes Robertson provided. No, I haven't seen the suit I wore that night, Lewis replied. Based on other witness testimony at the time, the prosecution alleged Lewis's bloodstained suit was discarded when Robertson and others drove from Lewis's hotel that morning and stopped to dump a bag in the dumpster of a fast food restaurant nearby. It's not clear what was dumped. Oakley, the acquitted co-defendant, said his clothes from that night went missing when he was taking a shower at Lewis's hotel suite shortly after the incident. He didn't testify at trial, but wrote about it in his book, Memories of Murder, whose scarce copies are listed for sale on Amazon.com at $174 each. Now, this, this article that I pulled this information from is a little bit old. So, I don't know if they're still on sale on Amazon or if they're still $174 each. So now let's get into the criminal trial. And the majority of this information um, was pulled from the Law Library, American Law and Legal Information Encyclopedia. A notorious criminal lawyer, Ed Garland, who was known in Atlanta for representing the rich and famous, led Lewis's defense team. Reginald Oakley and Joseph Sweeting were also principal suspects in the murder. Investigators claimed that Lewis... Oakley and Sweeting bought knives at an Atlanta sporting goods store the day before the murder, and witnesses were set to testify that Ray was, in fact, involved in the brawl. The chief prosecution witness would be Dwayne Fassett, the limousine driver. The day after Ray was officially indicted and charged with two counts of malicious murder, two counts of felonious murder, and two counts of assault with a deadly weapon, Garland gave the defense's version of the incident. Ed claimed that Ray Lewis was actually the peacemaker by trying to break up the fight, particularly by removing Sweeting and Oakley from the altercation. As Lewis, Sweeting, and Oakley pulled away from the scene in the limo, shots were fired at their vehicle. Sweeting turned himself in on Valentine's Day, while Oakley followed suit the day after. The same day, Lewis was released on a $1 million bond in order to stay at home with no drug or alcohol usage. Jury selection for the trial began on May 15th. Before opening statements were made, Fulton County Superior Court Judge Alice D. Bonner ruled that Lewis's police statement made after the incident would be admissible as evidence. This is important because it was then widely acknowledged to be a false statement. On May 27th, 
Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard began presenting the prosecution's case. He immediately acknowledged that no witness would testify seeing Lewis with a knife, but testimony would include involvement in the fight that ultimately led to the deaths of Lawler and Baker. In turn, the defense emphasized and reiterated that no witnesses saw any of the three defendants with a knife, that two men known to have fled in the limousine had never been traced, and that the defense witnesses would contradict the testimony of Dwayne Fassett. In the second week of the trial, four of the prosecution's witnesses couldn't even identify Ray as an aggressor in the brawl. Then Dwayne testified that he never saw Ray throw a punch and said that he seemed to be trying to break up the fight. After a failure on the prosecution's part, and to no one's surprise, the murder and assault charges against Lewis were dropped in exchange for his guilty obstruction of justice plea. Lewis was given one year's probation, during which he was to continue to be employed, ordered to pay one-third of the court costs, and forbidden to use drugs or alcohol. In the testimony the following day, Lewis told the court that Sweeting had showed him afterwards how he, how he had concealed the knife in his fist and jabbed with it, but that he could not tell whether either Sweeting or Oakley had stabbed anyone. Oakley, he said, had been the aggressor in the fight. He had seen no blood on Sweeting's knife or clothing. The jury acquitted both men on June 12th. Ray Lewis was fined $250,000 by the NFL for lying to the police, but resumed his successful career as a football player, helped lead the Ravens to victory in the 2001 Super Bowl, and won the game's most valuable player award. He was actually um, inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame in 2018 as well, and still has a successful career as an NFL analyst, among many other things. He has endorsements. Um, he's considered a motivational speaker. He's very strong in his faith. Um, and I believe at one time he was either considered to be or did serve as a special advisor to Roger Goodell. Um, so he definitely reinvented himself after this murder obstruction of justice fiasco. So after researching and reading and recording this podcast, what do you think about Ray Lewis? Um, I think that I don't think that he murdered them. I think that he was innocent on that. However, I do think that he knows who murdered them and that he was a bystander in it. Um, and it was one of his friends or both of his friends or whatever. Um, but he was involved in some way. I don't think that he was necessarily the one that murdered them. So I posted this poll kind of late, but, um, a few hours before we started recording, I, um, put a poll on Instagram, my personal Instagram, not the podcast. And it said, yes, he lied to police. But did Ray Lewis commit murder in 2000? And we have two innocent votes and one guilty vote. Aside from the poll, I've also talked to a couple of people who are older than both Carly and I. Because when this happened, Carly was not even three yet. 
<laughs> and I was uh, 11, 12 years old. So I remember, I remember that Super Bowl game for sure. I remember that. I remember the house I lived in. I remember watching it with both of my parents. Um, I remember being in the living room. I just, I remember the Super Bowl. And when that happened, I didn't hear much about it. But in the following years, it was kind of a running joke that Ray Lewis did it. Um, you probably never heard anything, did you? Yeah. It was kind of a running joke that Ray Lewis did it and not to mess with Ray Lewis cause he would stab you. But I think part of that reputation, well, obviously it comes from what he was charged with, but part of that reputation comes from him being like an absolute beast on the football field. And he went to the university of Miami and back in the day, Miami used to be really, really good. And they were also like a super hard hitting um, flashy team that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So I think that goes hand in hand with why people continue to run with the narrative that he was guilty. So me personally growing up, I was like, yeah, he's guilty. And then within the past few years, just reading things casually, I was like, maybe he is innocent. And then doing this podcast, I'm reading that there's a lack of physical evidence witnesses were recanting um you also read that his mother and um miss robertson who was with him in the limo were allegedly involved in a campaign to harass and pay off witnesses so when it comes to an actual trial and having evidence and being able to prosecute him properly there was seems to be like no way that could actually happen whether he was guilty or not um in addition to some of the people I talked to I talked to a law enforcement officer and I'm just going to read a few of the messages um he said guilty he said Ray is guilty um due to to the fact that he tried too hard to hide the fact that he was present even discarded the clothing he wore that night which we went over um in his experience People who go that far to risk obstructing a murder investigation weren't just simply present. Um, He goes on to say murder is one of those cases where there can't be any doubt in the decision made, which I disagree with because we've seen many of those. But anyway, therefore, with no eyewitnesses, no prints on the weapon and no clothing to analyze, how can you accurately accuse one person out of dozens who are fighting? It's one of the situations where you know who did and could probably paint a good picture for the jury to see what you see but at the end of the day the judge is going to ask do you have any physical evidence to back this theory so best case scenario um I would drop the murder charges and the reason why he said that is because I was like okay so why did the prosecution drop the charges instead of confronting the witnesses about changing their statements um he also says leaving an opening for someone to leak the truth down the road and then you convict Otherwise, once you charge someone and lose it, it doesn't matter if Ray himself came out and said he did it, still can't be charged after being found not guilty. Every single case, I have people who I base my entire case off of change their story. All that matters is what they say on the stand. It's not illegal to lie to me. It is illegal to lie in the courts. Like right now, well, I'm not going to read that. Um... But anyway, he also went on to say, I'm sure he paid several people to stay quiet, which goes hand in hand in the theory that his mother and 
Mrs. Robertson harassed witnesses. Um, so I'm still kind of undecided. Um, do I think he was the peacemaker? No. Um, we heard statements that he was extremely intoxicated and the most peaceful of people can be super aggressive once they start ingesting alcohol and whatnot. This is just speculation, of course. Um, also you can separate the person from the athlete, but if you've seen Ray Lewis play, you know how strong he is and how powerful he is. I'm trying not to use the word violent because I just don't feel like that's fair, but I just don't feel like he was the peacemaker. Whether or not he stabbed someone to death, I don't know, but I feel like he was definitely a part of that fight and that he definitely obstructed justice, um, got rid of those clothes, you know, told the people in the limo to shut up because his career wasn't going to end this way. And whether he killed someone or not, if you're involved with something like that, that could end your career. Um, he just happened to be one of the lucky ones where those charges um, didn't necessarily follow him forever. Another thing that I wanted to read and might be a little bit biased, but it's an article from um, CBS Baltimore. And it's five common misconceptions about Ray Lewis's murder trial. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, one of the misconceptions is that he was involved in a murder. We already went over that. Um, those charges were dropped. So when people say it was he was involved in a murder, that's a theory. That's a guess. That might even be correct, but he was never um, convicted of it. So that's a misconception. Um, another misconception is Ray Lewis's friends went to jail to protect him. Uh, that's not true. No one went to jail. <laughs> His friends were acquitted. And actually one of the friends came out afterwards and wrote a book basically saying that Ray was the aggressor. So that's a misconception. Um, Ray Lewis refused to testify against his friends in the murder trial. That's definitely a misconception because that's how he got off the hook. Um, he entered that guilty plea of obstruction of justice and went on to say what he saw his friends do, but they got acquitted because there's no evidence. Um, the murders were never solved. This is written a lot along with something to the effect that no other suspects were ever arrested. It doesn't seem to be in dispute that Oakley and Sweeting killed Baker and Lawler, but the jury found that it was self-defense. And the final misconception is Ray Lewis is a murderer. Um, maybe. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe. But according to the court of law, he was not. And um, yeah. So that is our take on Ray Lewis. I said last week that it was similar to Sandusky and the fact that it's someone that's very powerful in sports that has a hold on a fan base that would never believe they could do anything violent, but I would never put their names in the same sentence because two completely, completely different scenarios and situations. And we actually have a crime of the week for you guys this week. 
Um, I know nothing about it. So when Carly tells you about it, I'll be learning of it first thing as well. So this happened, the article was written by the New York Post in, it was this month, but it was October 7th. Um, So it's been a little bit, but I think it's hilarious. Um, This was in Fountain Valley, California. So apparently on that Monday, this guy named Samuel Brown busted into a Fountain Valley Chase bank, um, slipped a note to the teller, um, and basically said, give me all your money or I'll kill you. (laughs) 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 And so they gave him some money, and um, the police didn't catch him then. But then the next day, he came back and robbed the same bank. And, of course, he did not get away that time. The police showed up before he was able to get away. (laughs) So, (laughs) he did not have enough money from the bank the first time, so he came back and robbed it again. Dude clearly was having financial struggles (laughs) (laughs) to the point that he couldn't even go to another bank. He had to go back to the same one. I guess he felt successful. Yeah, he said that was too easy. <laughs> so he wanted to try again. Um, one of the things we forgot to mention last week was Brian Laundry's remains being found. And that is another poll that we put on our Instagram page, the actual podcast page. And that got a lot of interaction. Um, I want to say it was like 69% of people believe that he is alive and the remains thing was staged and he's in like, you know, Canada or Mexico or something. And then the rest believe he was dead. Uh, Carly, why do you think he is still alive? I voted for alive too. I just want to hear what Carly says. Okay. So my thing is that his remains were allegedly found um, and that they matched them to dental records. Um, However, I haven't seen that the actual DNA has came back yet, and DNA is very powerful. Um, So I will not think that it is him until the DNA comes back and it is a match, not just like, I don't know, but an, an actual match. So the reason why we put this poll up is because when the autopsy came back, the results were inconclusive, right? Right. And his family said they weren't having a funeral. And there was something else. I can't remember. Uh, It says, Brian Laundrie's autopsy has come back inconclusive and his remains are now being transferred to an anthropologist. Um, there's no manner or cause of death determined and they will not be having a funeral service. Which on one hand, I can understand why you wouldn't have a funeral service because even if you tried to make it private, this is the number one case of like the year so far. It's one of the biggest news stories. So even if you try to make it private, there would be paparazzi everywhere. So that's one thing. I'll give it to him. You know, I'm not 100% sure if I would have a funeral service on top of his parents and family might just 
you, you know, they know what their son did and they're not exactly in a space to where they could celebrate his life. Um, on the other hand, people were saying one of our, um, followers, I know he listens and I've actually talked to him about podcasting before. I think it's the awesome nobody podcast. I believe that's what it is. Anyway, he said he was having a far, a hard time believing that his remains would already be skeletal, which I thought too. But then when you listen to people who actually do this for a living, crime scene investigators and forensic scientists, where his remains were found were in like a swampy area where due to the amount of heat and humidity and the amount of critters that would feed on his body, it's very possible that it would be just skeletal remains. Um, on the other hand, you could also knock a couple teeth out, lay them on the ground, get some random bones, <laughs> and they test the teeth, and it's like, oh, it's Brian's teeth, and he could be halfway to Mexico, or he's already there. Um, obviously, that's a little far-fetched but we just don't know anything yet we don't know anything yet um I guess once the anthropologist comes back they might have a cause of death or they might have something that completely blows our minds and we really do have a reason to believe that he's still out there somewhere another thing that threw people off was as soon as his parents what what was it with his parents that either took them directly to where the remains were or the remains were found after they did a search themselves. Yeah, so they opened up the public. They opened up the reserve to the public again and the parents were like, "Yeah, we want to go we want to go search it since it's open to the public." And so they went there, but the police escorted them there, of course. Um the their attorney, uh Steve Bertolino told them told the police that they that the parents wanted to go to the reserve, so the police escorted them there, and they were like, oh, yeah, look, we found his, we found some stuff. And, like, that's just kind of fishy to me. They looked in that area and had canines and everything, and then his parents are the ones that find it? I don't know. Weird. Yeah, it's shady for sure. But, yeah, we just wanted to touch on that. It's still ongoing, and we forgot to last week, so... There it is. Um, next week, the Ariel Castro kidnappings. I know nothing about this. Do you? Yes, I do. A little bit. Okay. So we're going to dive into that. Um, like I said, I know nothing about this, and it doesn't even ring a bell. So hopefully it's one of those episodes that you guys aren't too familiar with because you guys tend to gravitate towards those as well. I mean, you know, obviously the big names, but a lot of times we receive feedback like, oh, we never heard about this one before. Carly's getting upset because her husband's coming downstairs, so we're going to wrap it up, right? Yes. All right. Is that all you got? Yeah, that's all I got. All right. Holla, baby flamingo. Baby.